0: Welcome back to How to Sell an Agency, the podcast sharing real stories of founders who built and sold agency businesses. I'm your host, Matt Bennett. I'm a built and sold agency founder myself, and I now work as an advisor, mentor, and non-exec to other agencies. But this episode is all about Damien Reese. For those who've been following the podcast, you'll already realize that I've been trying to find stories that go a bit deeper than your typical acquisition press release, and Damien's story certainly does that. Damien co-founded an agency that seemed to be ticking all the boxes, growing, doing great work, and working with some impressive names. But then he decided to sell his stake. Perhaps surprisingly, the sale wasn't motivated by riches either. Damien's story also comes with an interesting hunter-turned-gamekeeper twist, when his role shifted to looking for other agencies that would make good acquisition targets. If you're hoping to sell your own agency one day, you definitely want to listen to his views on that part of the story. Here then is Damien Reese on how to sell an agency. Good morning, Damien. Thank you for joining me and thank you for letting me interrupt your Monday morning. Very, very well, am Happy to be here. We've been chatting for a while, and I think with your story, there's almost as much to say about after the agency as there is kind of in the build-up too. But maybe you can start just setting the scene. You know, Experience UX, how did the agency come about and what was the agency like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it came about probably similar to many other agency owners in that they realized they're actually a really bad employee. And that was the same for me. I realized I didn't like being told what to do. I questioned decisions way too often. And probably it was a right pain in the arse to manage, <laughs> I would have thought. And I think I just became a bit disillusioned with the whole career track of, you know, having to impress this boss who I didn't like and then impress a new boss. And I Yeah, it wasn't for me. Because um, so you were both agency side and in-house
0: prior to forming, yeah, weren't pre- you?
1: predominantly agency before, although I had done a couple of big for me at the time. So two years dint in in-house roles. So I worked at BBC mm. and National Air Traffic Services. It's two quite different, but doing UX on both of those. And one of the things that I realized, I think, which is why I wanted to start the agency, was when I was at the BBC, I was in a kind of unique role where I was BBC New Media at the time. So I was like the first UX employee they had. Because we didn't have enough resource, what I had to do was help people like Radio One and News and Sport and Gardening and whoever it was, help their digital teams to formulate a brief to go out to agencies and get the work done. So it's predominantly UX research work. And I just found like, The agencies weren't very good. The stuff we got back was really problematic and quality was questionable. And the biggest thing that bothered me the most was they kind of came back with all of these problems. Yeah, you know, you've got this problem with your website. This has got to change. That's got to change. But they didn't ever really deal with what they would do. What's the solution to the problem? And that always frustrated me. So that was the primary reason to set up an agency was I wanted to be people who, you know, we found the problem through research Mm -hmm. and then we helped the company fix it because that feels like the most right thing to do. So that was the primary motivation. You threw in a phrase there that I haven't heard for quite a while, which
0: probably gives us an idea of age, new media.
1: Yes. I haven't
0: heard that one for a while. So
1: so when was this? Well, I was at the BBC in 2001, I think. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think UX was a term back then. It was all usability. So I was a usability engineer which sounds very grandiose now. So yeah, so UX wasn't really a thing. It was all usability. But I could see the potential in it. I believed in it. And I, it was what I did at uni. And it was just something I knew that I was into because it yeah. blended that psychology and computing and how people operate. And then and actually moving into our traffic controls, because it was all about designing systems to reduce human error and increase human performance. And I love that. I love the psychology yeah. of all of that stuff so that was great although it's
0: one of those areas ux isn't it that as, as you say it, i don't know even how much like in my early days it didn't really exist or i wasn't aware of it as its own discipline it was no. sort of a mindset that people were trying to a- apply or beginning to apply because it's, it's, it's been an area that's always interested me but i think i was i think it, it came along too late for it's kind of restarted my career yeah so, so how, so how did that turn into, so from being another one of us bad employee club, which I think I would, Yeah. there's definitely people listening who will agree, you know, I'm definitely a member of that club. How did it go from that to deciding, well, how, how did you start with the agency? Was it, it was
1: sole founder? No, so okay. I was a bit too, I didn't have the courage to start on my own. I wanted to, but I just kept on holding myself back. And I was offered a job in an agency by my wife's cousin, essentially. Okay. And I was quite upfront saying, I want to start my own business. And he was like, well, why don't you come and join my agency and help me sell UX function? And if you leave, you leave. That's no problem. You, know, you can learn how mm-hmm. to stop And I did that. And, you know, I did a year there. It didn't really work for me. But I also found my co-founder there, who was a bit disillusioned, thinking about leaving, And had a lot of the skills I didn't have. So product management, he was very going, you know, like I'm more introverted. He was more extroverted. Mm. He had a bit more business brain him than I did. And so we kind of just, I don't know, we just took the plunge. I sort of found somebody who was ready to do something. And I had something that I'd already incorporated the business, but it was just dormant for a year. Yeah. So then we cleared our debts and launched into the world of business having known absolutely nothing about what we were doing. And it took us probably way longer than it should have done, probably five years or so really, to actually establish a brand and know how to run a business. Because the first five years we didn't know what we were doing and we made lots of mistakes and
0: So for those listeners who were in that first five years and mm. we I will I will optimistically say mine was also five, looking back mm. possibly quite a bit longer. But for those in that stage there, what sort of things do you look back on now and go, well, that was something we definitely shouldn't have been doing. That's something easily identifiable or that we should have been doing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. When I looked back on this before, I think I noticed the key point at which we started to shift our mindset was when we actually started paying for an office. So before we did it in bedrooms and yeah, you know, We did it in wherever, like bedrooms, coffee shops. That was what we, we were doing. And it was working because we went to clients all the time. So it wasn't such a problem. Yeah. We had head slow. Yeah. And then actually, when we started to pay for an office and get our first employees in, that was suddenly a mind shift to mm. shit, we used to grow up. And, but actually, it just forced that, I think. So before that, we were just doing the two of us and we were doing the work. But I think the mindset shift of having employees to worry about, having overheads, serious overheads, I mean, they weren't huge, but still, I think that was just more of the push that we needed. Interestingly, every time we got a new office, we paid for a new office, I guess our seriousness changed. Yeah. And The more income we started getting and the more we were serious about sales and every office change seemed to us in the right direction, which was interesting. But I think also we were growing... Probably as people, you know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing pretty immature and we both started families. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a big one, isn't it? I think yeah.
0: that that was that was a pivotal one for me. Again, that mindset change of, you know, I, I look back on my agency history and I think a lot of it was an excuse not to have a real job. And, you know, and that's not saying I didn't work hard. You know, certainly worked hard, maybe harder sometimes than others. But I didn't want a job, as you said. Bad employee. And it became, it certainly wasn't a game, but I was quite happy to kind of bummed along and make enough to kind of get by, have a nice life and have control. Yeah. All the serious things changes it, doesn't it? As you say, it's exactly. salaries, it's rent, it's wife mm-hmm. and kids. It's, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think just having that mindset of we need X amount per month to come in the door to survive. Mm-hmm. I think before we could, we kind of because we cleared our debts, we sort of knew that we could survive on pretty minimal income. But now we had babies and yeah, families, and it all started to change. So I think that focused the mind a little.
0: It removes that permission, doesn't it, to yeah. not try as hard as you you could. Yeah, I see, I see that a lot. I think talking to people, I generally get a pretty good sense. Early on, which businesses were started out of a, you know, kind of a passion for the craft and which ones came out of here's an opportunity to make a load of money. And, you yeah. know, not saying either's right or wrong, but Group B tend to have the, uh, the sales side sorted quite a lot sooner than Group A do. And yeah. you, you do need that motivation. So, you know, kind of going forward at a fast forward pace through the agency history, then how did it change from that start of, you were the co-founder, figuring things out, bumbling through that first five years. What did the agency look like towards the end of the journey?
1: Yeah, so I guess probably about a decade in was when we had a more established business. You know, like I think we had about 12 people, a couple of them were contractors and stuff. And, you know, we had some good clients. We had the Financial Times, we had Burberry and they were ongoing clients and they were nice, you know, nice teams and we were providing really good value and it felt like we had a proper business. But for me, I think I sort of kept on having this promised land of, you know, the point in time where I could free myself a bit from the agency and start doing some passion projects, things I wanted to do. And that promised land really just kept on being out of reach. And I suppose also the other thing to note is when I started, I wanted to do UX, but not just digital UX. I wanted to do real world design. I wanted to yeah. apply user-centered design to, I don't know, the layout of a library or the layout of a hospital or, you know, an event or whatever. And we never managed to get there because digital was just too easy and too. It was what we mm. were selling, and it just became the thing that we sold. But I think I started to feel a bit bored with just doing digital. So, but you know, the business was doing well and I had no reason to complain really, but I did feel dissatisfied and starting to feel more distance from the core UX activities because my role shifted into operations. Marketing and operations was pretty much my thing. So I was training people, I was setting processes in place, I was looking out for, you know, efficiencies, and I was quite distanced from both clients and actual delivery. You know, I was. Overseeing delivery but I didn't really get involved in the stuff that I'm passionate about and I'm good at. Mm-hmm. I
0: Again think that, that's quite a common pattern isn't it we yeah, will start these businesses doing because we want to do more of what we love and then slowly we do less and less of it and for many people so I, you know I was, I was quite lucky because I, I had a lot of interest in the business side and I would previously studied business management so I kind of gained an interest in that side as I I actually lost a lot of the passion for what we were doing. But I think that there is that real common thing, isn't there, that you start something that you love and slowly get to do less and less of it and more and more of what's often the tedious stuff for many people.
1: Yeah. And I I did find we were a bit of a victim of our own success, that we were well known in the area as being a solid, you know, good quality UX agency Mm -hmm. and good quality UX people were hard to find. And so what happened was we would train people and then they would be poached by other agencies that didn't yeah. use people. And, you know, we were regional, based in the South Coast, so we didn't have a massive talent pool to choose from. And so I found that I was constantly having to look out for, you know, potential new employees, train people, keep my team happy, you know, make sure we were profitable. And mm. all of those things just felt actually increasingly difficult because, We've got a big employer in the area. We've got JP Morgan, right? So oh, okay. They pay three times what most people would pay. And so we would be, like, I would interview people and I would offer them a role. And then, you know, two days later, they say, oh, I've actually been offered a job at JP Morgan for, like, three times. You can't compete with. Yeah, and yeah, so we started to struggle to compete. And so we needed to up our outgoings. We needed to up our price. But then it was a competitive market. and. Mm-hmm that squeeze was becoming quite stressful for me. And I think keeping the team happy, I was starting to get involved in so-and-so doesn't like working with so-and-so. And, And, you know, so-and-so said this and -and so-and-so that. And I just started to become a bit of a father figure, sorting out everyone's problems. And the way that I operate, unfortunately, is I take on all of those problems as my own. Yeah, And so I found myself doing... The job I didn't enjoy consumed by other people's problems and finding that I'd go home to, you know, two screaming kids and having lack of any, uh, what's the word? Well, sleep deprivation, but also any kind of personal time, you know? And I think that grew and grew and grew to the point where I just had a day where I start, I, I started crying over something really pathetic. I don't even remember what it, what it was now. It was really silly And I started to constantly cry and constantly start to feel really desperate. And that lasted for about a three-day period of feeling desperate, like out of control, couldn't get control of my emotions, and sort of forced me to take some time away from work. But ended up being about six weeks. And, you know, it was a full-on breakdown. I didn't really realize what it was at the time. But when my co-founder was like, when are you coming back? I need you back. And when I started thinking about going to back going back to work, I just felt that I couldn't do that. That wasn't mm. something I could do. So I think it became a realization, perhaps, at the time, thinking, I think maybe it's the work that is doing this to me. And yeah. maybe I can't go back. But it was my baby. I had a team relying on me. I had a co-founder relying on me. I could not go back. So I did go back. And then you know, kind of threw myself into various projects and we had another office move, And so that was consuming. And so I kind of ignored it for a period of time. And then we had like a quite bad financial period where a couple of big clients stopped their contracts with us mm. and just it sort of plummeted us into financial problems and, you know, the stress of that. So that lasts about three months. We managed to get ourselves out of it, but it was very touch and go for a period you know some serious conversation with the accountants and you know really thinking about can we continue and i think i just sort of came out of that and i knew i was done i just have no energy left for it
0: yeah going to ring and you know it's going to ring a lot of bells with people listening i yeah. think you know those themes of running a business it, it can be relentless as that you describing it then i could feel my heart rate increase and a, a bit of flashback to Certain times, and that feeling of just never being able to never getting a break from it, and yeah, as you say, home and work, probably our pressure times happened at a similar time in my family cycle as yours did, and just feeling that not get a break, and that taking on other people's problems isn't it? I think that's something I feel like you and I are wired quite similarly, and we've had these some of these conversations before mm. and I think a lot of people don't realise that as as you do take on a team, for a lot of people that does mean just you know taking on every problem, but not every problem that everyone has, but a significant number of problems from other people. So how big was the team at that point? I think,
1: we're, you know, not far off twelve. I think it was about probably yeah. about ten in the team, but you know, really we had my co-founder who was focused on sales and finance, and he had a sales guy. And then everyone else was pretty much me. So, you know, I felt like I was constantly juggling everyone else's shit, you know, to put, yeah. it, just to put it bluntly. And obviously I had my own shit going on and I felt increasingly trapped. And what was most frustrating about it was it was a trap that I'd built. You know, yeah. it was my trap. I'd built that whole thing. And as soon, every time I started to try and unpick it and think, well, I need to move out of the ops role then. I need to go and do... I need to go back into doing delivery more, but as soon as I started to do that, I was like, "Yeah, but I can't because I don't have. I can't go and employ somebody who's going to know how to slot into this role, and we don't have the finances to accommodate that." And so, it just the more I thought about it, the more I was trapped. Yeah, and that is a real difficult problem to get yourself out of. Um, yeah, once you're there, you've you've
0: removed. So, you know, I I work with a lot of clients where I can see that's the path. on, And I see that not from being some super intelligent person who couldn't see it coming, but from recognizing where we went. And it's really interesting. For me, that complete overwhelm came at about the same size. So we bounced around from like 10 to 12 people quite a lot. We just kind of keep pulling back down to 10. And I just found that the issues were multiplying. You know, the issues scaled up a lot quicker than the revenue did. That was for sure. And, you know, and I've written before about, Um, what I call the communications explosion. But I see that same pattern around those numbers is just where, yeah, you know, and I'm I'm putting thoughts into your mouth a bit. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the pattern I see quite a bit is we get businesses to a certain size, almost from our passion and our force of will. And then there becomes this tipping point where the complexity starts increasing very quickly. It becomes very difficult to get anything done. And you find yourself in the middle of almost every decision. And the more people there are, the more lines of communication. And you've just used all the same languages I've used: overwhelmed, trapped, and mm-hmm. and I'm you know I know there'll be others listening who are nodding and going, "This sounds very familiar." Mm-hmm. But with hindsight, can you think of how you would have stopped the business getting to that point?
1: Yeah, I think probably that there's another factor that we haven't touched on yet. But I think myself and my co-founder started to see the world differently and so we started to pull in different directions Mm. and it became to the point where almost every decision we disagreed on yeah and so i think we were i was trapped in the business but i was also trapped by this constant feeling as we are like diluting really our passion and vision to accommodate each other and that was what was killing it, I think. That was what was killing me anyway. I was just mm-hmm. like, not only is this really fucking hard, excuse my language, but it's also exhausting to have to yeah. accommodate somebody else who see things differently. And you know, every decision I'd have to second guess myself and think, well, what would he think? What what is right? Am I right? Is he right? What and and you know, like, you know, you've got decisions coming at you constantly it's tough it's really tough and I think that was actually the the breaking point for me and I think maybe what we needed to recognize earlier on is that the business well our vision for the business although we're aligned on lots of things I think we probably could have seen that split coming sooner and we Mm -hmm. could have made a decision that one of us was either going to take a different role or different path or we were going to split and responsibilities different or don't know. But we didn't split them well enough, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was doing sales and I had opinions about how he was doing sales. And I, I was doing marketing and delivery and he had opinions about how I was doing that. And we, I don't think either of us felt particularly free to make pre-range decisions on either yeah. area. So I think that probably didn't help. And I think that caused issues within T2. Mm-hmm. because you know it was like always like playing a parent off against each other he, he would say one thing i'd say something different and then we'd be forced to make a decision together on it and you know that's just incredibly inefficient yeah I, if I was going into an agency now and i saw that i'd be like you two need to shit out one of you needs to go or you need to split your responsibilities more clearly um so i think that is definitely a factor mm-hmm. i think also you know, part of that difference in opinion was was actually we thought, I, I felt like we needed some more design work to compete and change the way in which we have that initial relationship with clients. so that They yeah. would come to us for design rather than research. He felt differently, and so that also caused a strain because I think that could have pushed the business in a slightly different direction and might have alleviated some of financial difficulty, but. I could have been wrong on that as well. So mm-hmm. who knows? Never know now. Never know. No, now. exactly.
0: Once you'd come to that mental state of going, this isn't the long term. How did you move forward from there? How did you bring it up with your co-founder?
1: I don't think it came as any surprise. And I think there were probably, you know, we'd been really civil, even despite our differences, we'd be, we'd been really civil with them. But there did come a point in time when that financial pressure hit that I was less than tactical with my delivery, let's say. And I think that was a shock to him. And it was also a shock to me to some extent because I kind of felt like, "Mm, this is going to break quite quickly. So I don't think it came as a big surprise. I just sat down and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore and I want to get out as soon as possible. And so... You know, he was great with that. He was really accommodating. Understood the issue. I think he wasn't. You know, I'd been moaning about various things during my time and disillusion, not feeling it, and that promised land, mm-hmm. all that stuff. None of that was news. So we just sat down and said, "How do we proceed?" And I think we felt like the fairest thing to do was draw up a plan. Each draw up a plan of. If I was buying you out, this is what I would want the deal to look like. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. So and and he did say quite a few times that, you know, you can also buy me out. So it isn't just going to be yeah. what I think. So I think we spoke to the accountant as well on what the hell do we do with this. I think what was held us back before actually was a, a false assumption that personally we needed the finances to buy the other one out. And yeah. I think whenever we'd have disagreements or whatever, this probably popped into our head. But I, I was always thinking, I, got, I haven't got the money to buy them out. It's just mm-hmm. not possible. But actually, when we realised the business could effectively buy the other person out, and, and we could do that on a a monthly thing, it became a lot more tangible and a lot more realistic. So okay, that's a so that that
0: was that was the the underlying structure then, like a a. Uh, a share buyback yeah. over over a period. Yeah. So, were you ever tempted for it to go the other way and for you, thought you about to it. be them?
1: I thought about it because, you know, I love the team. It was my baby. I'd set the whole thing up at the very beginning and I knew that I could take them in a different direction. But I also knew that mentally I was a bit done and I needed a break from running a business and I needed time back for me and so I just yeah I knew that I wasn't I've kind of wanted to buy I wanted it to be mine but equally I wasn't ready at that particular time yeah and I kind of knew that that would be the wrong decision um so it became a lot easier to walk away at that point uh, even though I had no idea what the hell I was going to do and the business wasn't going to allow me the freedom to buy out was not going to allow me the freedom to go oh, I'm just going to sit on a beach for six months and work it out. I needed to earn money yeah. straight away, really. So that was a pressure, but I just felt like it was a smaller pressure than the one that I was releasing, yeah. getting out.
0: A successful agency, good size, great clients, obviously some financial pressures. I think a lot of people assume that means that, you walk away with a a a life changing chunk and i guess lives could be changed at different levels and you know i am certainly not asking you to lay out numbers or anything but just, so how how did you how did you get to a figure that you agreed and how did that compare with I don't know, maybe your expectations before you started that process.
1: I did, yeah. I mean, I didn't really know what my expectations were. But at, at the height, when we were doing really our best, I think we yeah. were asked at one point what would we consider to walk away. And my figure was a bit unrealistic. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether it's unrealistic. Maybe if we sold at that point, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But when I was in that moment of don't want to do this anymore or we've just been through financial shit. You know, I don't even know if the business is gonna survive at that point. Yeah. You know, we were that sort of place that and we had we had some personal guarantees on some loans and like you know, the O and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and so it was it was one of those sort of things. When we were going through the really bad sort of stuff, I was like, well I could be personally liable for quite a bit here if yeah. this business fails. And so I'm, I could either be negative equity of whatever, or I could be positive this Mm -hmm. much. And Mm -hmm. so I don't really remember how I came to the figure. I think I asked a couple of agency owners that I know, like, what seems reasonable to you and just sort of that guided a bit of my thinking. And then also just thinking about the other side of thinking, right, if I was going to take this business on, what would I think? What could I reasonably pay the other party in this in this exchange and still survive the business? Mm-hmm. Because that was a key factor. What I did not want to do was leave and have the business fail. That yeah. was not something that I wanted to see for you know, the business and the legacy, but also for him. That was you know, I wanted the best for all parties and a win-win was critical to me and, and I think to him as well. So I don't know. I don't know how you ride the figure. It was okay. just, I think we sort of got to a place where probably was just like, yeah, I just want to go now. I just want yeah. to go. That seems reasonable. I'm not going to be a millionaire out of this, but it's time. And, and I need to move on with the next chapter of my life. So, yeah, getting it done quickly and um, easily was was also a key factor.
0: Yeah. Did you manage to get it done quickly and easily, or relatively? Yeah. So, how long did the deal kind of take from agreeing a price, I guess, or from I was having those conversations of
1: the permanent role in the business within two weeks or so. Wow, I I would call that quick. It was really quick. Yeah, and I think I think I kind of knew, just couldn't play the game anymore. Yeah, you know, I couldn't. Do I couldn't do it for the team. I couldn't fake it. I couldn't. It didn't have it in me anymore. I was done. Yeah. And I think I think you know everyone talking about it recognized that. And so you know I was still there. I still available. Still supported. Still you know was willing to help out. But I was looking at my next, cha- next chapter within a couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay. I mean maybe it was slightly longer, but it wasn't much longer. Three four weeks max, I'd say. Wow. So,
0: you, you've already explained it wasn't a you know it wasn't a suitcase full of cash on day one. It was a a regular envelope. We'll, we'll call it. Um, how how long was that payout over? Two years. Two years, and presumably you had quite a lot of restrictions in what you could do over over the tied to the same period.
1: Yeah, and, so yeah. It's tied to the same period. So yes. I mean, the, the obvious ones of not approaching clients, not, not setting up a competing agency, yeah. all of those sorts of things. But also, you know, I was trying my best to reassure that I had no intention of, you know, screwing them over. Yeah. And that actually what I was looking at straight away was getting a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still don't really understand why, but I, I suspect some things. Well, partly I needed a break running a business. And also, I would constantly go visit my clients who were, uh, you know, head of UX at Burberry or whatever it was. But I always think, well, you've got quite a nice job there. That, mm-hmm. I, I should do that. I could do that job. And I might enjoy doing that job. Even though i heard myself say many, many times, I'll never get a job again um, for some reason. But I also had heard myself say many times, I could leave tomorrow and go and get a well-paid job in London and not have any of this stress and so I think for some reason I was just convinced myself I needed to go improve myself and get a job yeah and so that's what I did I didn't last very long <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that from from founder to employee moving yeah. to the
0: the easy life of salaried uh, jobs yeah
1: well I guess the bit of context then so I left two months before covid hit Mm -hmm. so my plans of getting a job were was quite quickly because jobs were a bit harder to come by straight away because everyone was freaking out and so i did i didn't get a job quite very quickly or easily and and i noticed very early on that i didn't fit into the typical box that an employee would fit into Mm -hmm. so when i was interviewed i didn't fit and i was Mm -hmm. i was a risk and you know, this guy's run a business for 12 years. Why would he want this job? And I mean, that might be being kind to myself. They might have just not liked me. And mm-hmm. I was, sort of, you know, crap option. I don't know. But I felt like I was going for jobs. I was well qualified to do. Yeah. Again. And I don't think I was going in thinking I was Billy really big balls. But, you know, I was going quite humble. But anyway, it took me a long while to get a job. I finally got one in a startup working directly with the CEO, really liked the project, just, I won't go into detail, but just wasn't right. <clears throat> it wasn't no. right between me and the CEO and from someone else in that team. So I lasted six months there, and then I got a job for a large global agency. And I thought, okay, I'm back in agency world. I know I know how this operates. I was in sort of quite a senior position globally, looking at how we grow through acquisitions of UX companies globally. So that was really, I thought, you know, this is cool. I'm, I'm getting to buy the agencies like my old one in different parts of the world to grow our team and then integrate them into business and train and coach, you know, heads of UX across different countries. And so I did that for two years. But I think I realized what bothered me early on was, you know, but early on in my career, when I was, couldn't really put my finger on why I was a crap employee, I realized what it was. And I can't get on board with someone else's passion or idea or vision if I don't believe it myself. Yeah. And I was being forced to toe the line on things that I didn't believe and didn't think were right. And it was killing my passion. You know, it was killing my drive to get up and, and go to work and so yeah I kind of I didn't like being told what to do and I didn't yeah it just it kind of dawned on me that actually this isn't the path but I kind of made I felt like I made it made it enough up the corporate ladder I was now doing a very senior job in a very serious company and getting paid well so I felt I ticked that box.
0: I think that People won't really be surprised to hear that founder didn't like being told what to do, but that aligned passion point I think is one that probably gets overlooked as well. We've built something out of utter belief in what we do, and not having that behind what you do, or maybe even I don't know, I projecting, but maybe even doubting some of it can be soul destroying because. You know you're used to putting so much of yourself into every day, yeah. And yes. I, I, I see that a lot. Um, yeah. So just b- before you, before you move on, so for the, during that two years, there, there was a bit there I'm sure would have made people's ears prick up a little bit. You know, you were partly involved with acquiring other agencies for the larger agency. I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this, this podcast thinking, "Great, my plan is to sell one day," because most yeah. agency owners think there is. Most agency owners think that means there's going to be a big payout. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. And we I very deliberately tried to get a mix of both of those stories in this podcast. More often than not, it's somewhere in the middle. What made agencies valuable and attractive during that period?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to answer this with a UX spin on it, because that yeah. was what I was looking at, right? So and so we were looking for I guess the context is I was working for a global market research company, so they had to be research-led. So that was one of the key criteria, is the team had to be either founded by somebody who knew research or they had to have strong researchers in their team. And what you find quite quickly, and we sort of touched on this earlier on, is that UX wasn't a thing for a long time, wasn't on people's radars, and suddenly it was. Mm. And so what happened in the UX world is lots of people added UX to their agency. They added UX to their job title, and hey, presto, they get more work. But actually, there was a, I don't know how to say this, without so sounding snobbish. There's a difference between saying you do it and genuinely doing it, right? Yeah. And so because I know the difference, I was looking for agencies who genuinely did good UX, and they were research-led at uh, their foundation and that they went through the right processes so to some extent I could tell some of this externally so I could look at the team makeup and I could say you know they've got one researcher and 20 designers for example yeah they're not serious about it or worse is they've got no researchers and they're all designers and, and developers and so that again no and um, so to some extent it was structure and makeup but I think probably what made them, valuable was if they had ux they had good clients you know they looked solid in terms of the team structure and everything but they added something different so they brought something like i don't know a capability within healthcare expertise yeah. or financial services expertise or something they brought a skill set so it's or, all
0: broadening the whole so, rather than just adding more of the same each time yeah
1: so they needed to ideally bring in technology, a market we didn't have already or expertise we didn't have already, because we were looking at bringing an agency to go global. And so if they brought, I don't know, one of the things we're looking at, for example, was VR, you know, immersive experiences, because the whole metaverse thing was about to become a thing, right? So we wanted people in that. We thought. Yes. And interestingly, kind of overlooked the whole AI thing. But yeah, so we wanted something that we could bring in and then teach everyone else in the business and then mm-hmm. spread it globally, and that was how we wanted to make money. But I think the other sort of underlying things I was looking for was I wanted to see could the business outlast the owner. Mm-hmm. How charismatic was the leader? You know, like some agencies, in my in my observation, operate okay. Because they've got a charismatic leader who pulls everything together. And yes. behind the scenes, it could be an absolute disaster. And if that person is suddenly not there, the whole thing falls apart. So what I was looking for was structure behind the scenes where the leaders are in place but could be replaced. And that they had processes and they had, you know, they knew what their profit was on a project and they knew what they were most profitable and they knew how to change the efficiencies of those things. They had the operations in place and that if half their team left, because that can happen through an acquisition, that there is a replaceable mechanism. You know, they are are in a market where there's plenty of talent available. They've got relationships with universities. They've got a, a mechanism to bring in, new team members Mm. into the funnel, if you like, and upskill them quickly. Because I know from experience that is hard to get right. And it's interesting, isn't it? That's all that that dull operational
0: stuff, which isn't the reason we go into business. And I said, there is a perception that we just keep doing better work and the inevitable outcome is someone will buy us. But I think agencies have a a particular challenge when it comes to being inquired because, We're essentially a group of people who are currently choosing to work together for a group of clients who currently choose to use us. There's very little substance beyond that, which, sorry, agency owners, that sounds a bit dismissive. And I, you know, and I love the agency world and the agency model, but you have to have some more value. And I think a lot of it is its process, its systems, it's the things that probably aren't what ignited our passion to get into business.
1: Yeah. Um, and it was exactly that stuff that I was doing in my agency that I was looking for in these other agencies, even though I knew that I didn't like doing that. Anymore. But I knew that it was the foundation of good, you know, good profit, I suppose. Yeah. So I think, and, and it's surprising actually the amount of people that we did speak to that just didn't have it. They mm. didn't have that in place. So they looked from the outside to be really good and really attractive. But when it came down to it, there were a risk because, you know, as soon as the leader moves on or as soon as the acquisition takes place, the team falls apart. Yeah. And, you know, we we had a global operations system and they wouldn't get on board with it because they didn't have any sort of operational system. They obviously had some, but nothing really formulated. Mm-hmm. And so adopting a new one was going to cause problems and, Yeah. And interestingly as well, the other thing that I was looking for was in the sales operations was a marketing engine and a, a way of attracting new clients and getting clients yeah. that wasn't, again, based off the charismatic leader or sales guy, but there was some sort of formula or structure to that as well. And again, that was quite lacking from what I saw.
0: So you're saying the reason I got acquired was my lack of charisma. That's,
1: that could be my takeaway.
0: But it's interesting because it is all that stuff that allows you. I think not only puts the value in there, but actually allows you to walk away at some point as well, isn't That's it? Neat. Because being um, able
1: to walk away and, and leave something that still functions is is key.
0: So how did you how did you find these agencies? That's about kind of filtering and figuring out which ones would be good targets. But how do agencies get on your radar?
1: Well. I suppose in the UK, probably primarily because I worked in that space. I knew my competitors, yeah. you know, So, but looking at other countries was a lot harder, actually. But what I was looking for, I had like a bit of a process. I would look at what um, conferences go on and who mm-hmm. sponsors those conferences and who's speaking at those conferences. And I would get quite quickly a list of credible sees because... Mm-hmm. You know, there's a certain expectation that if you're sponsoring and speaking, then you are of a certain credibility. I would look at job adverts. I would look at who's hiring UX researchers, for example, who's hiring the people that we want to acquire. I would look at all of the things like clutch and whatever for a certain re- region. So, you know, and do a bunch of Google searches on, you know, your agency Sweden, for example. Yeah. So... That would be my process, and I do quite a lot of LinkedIn digging around when I found one. So, you know, first thing I would do is go look up the company on LinkedIn and see how many employees they had and where were they based. And you'd be surprised the amount that are based in India or you know somewhere like Philippines, and actually their core founder team might be based in the country that you're talking, which isn't necessarily a problem if the, the operations were, but. You could find out quite a lot, actually, by digging around and stuff like that. So it was a bit sort of, yeah, I had a process, but it wasn't very scientific or yeah. easy, actually. In some countries, I really struggled. Where was hard, just out of nosiness? And China was hard. Japan was hard. I struggled quite a lot in Australia, surprisingly, when you say. Yeah. Seeing as you would think. There were some established companies, but I think also, what, I found was a lot of them had been acquired already. So finding an independent who were decent in a market that was growing, you know, UX had been growing for some time. Yeah. They were all being snapped up already. So actually finding independence was quite difficult. So it's not that I couldn't find the agencies. I could, but they weren't available.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like quite an interesting role. And Mm -hmm. you've kind of hinted it was... You know, it was probably a a well-rewarded one in a well-recognized company, but it didn't pan out nonetheless. And you left there, when was that?
1: April this year. April this year. So what was the next chapter? Well, I'm back doing the thing I said I'd never do again, (laughs) which is a service-based agency, which is interesting actually. But I think it's also a bit like, it's what I know. And I'm sort of keen to write the wrongs that I met or the, the mistakes that I made last yeah. time. But also I know now what I don't want, you know, and I think actually finally coming to the conclusion that a job wasn't it and that a business really, what else is there? If I'm not going to be running my own business, then what the hell am I going to do? Because I tried freelance and I tried contracting and I tried a job. And there wasn't really many options left for me. And um, so... It gave me actually a bit of confidence that, okay, going back to agencies, what I know and what I'm good at. I still have a strong passion for UX and I still believe in doing it right is really valuable. Mm-hmm. I still want to do non digital stuff as well. And I just started doing a little bit of that in physical products and kitchen appliances and stuff like that. And that's exciting. But yeah, so it's. It's just me, really. And I've got some trusted freelancers that I bring in. So I'm not looking to grow massively. I don't have big ambitions to sell. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing it because I enjoy it and I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And there's some freedom in that. Sort of finally finding that after all this time and all these mistakes and all that pain, that actually I know now what I want and I still not. Hundred percent sure on what I want, mm-hmm. but I know what I don't want enough to know what I want. Yep, that makes sense.
0: It's it's so interesting, isn't it? If you think about, I don't know, you, you've seen the my nonsense I post on LinkedIn and stuff. I'm really intrigued about people's motivations when they start businesses and just the fact that everyone then seems to proceed to build a business that doesn't take them closer to any of those things. And what a lot of us want is something maybe a bit simpler than the. I don't know the the well established agency blueprint of old. So it's you know, even this will only go out as audio, but even seeing the difference in your face when you talk about what you're doing now and the fact it's this more balanced thing, you can see mm. it feels really obvious in hindsight, doesn't it? Well, just I'll do more of what I love and keep it reasonably simple. Yeah. yeah. So the new business make human. Are you describing yourself as an agency? Because I often ask people, would you start an agency again? And I didn't ask you that question because I'm like, oh, has he? Has he not? I don't know
1: what to call it, really. I mean, it is an agency in the capacity that we are hired by clients to fulfill a need. Yep. So I don't know, agency, consultancy, there's connotations to both of those terms. So I don't really know what it is. And I probably have described it as an agency, yes. I don't know what the right term is yet yeah but i think whatever it is it serves a need that is out there and i think more so now than in what we were fighting against for so long was companies bringing people in house constantly and it was so hard to operate as an agency offering a specialist need that they were bringing in house but interestingly now they've fired them all. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's actually the, so other, the
0: cycle continues right. yeah. yeah yeah
1: one of the first roles to go is u.s researchers so here I am again, doing US research, but also the design bit. I was never able to implement properly, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, it, I don't see it being a groundbreaking business. I'm going to make millions off, but I'm enjoying spending time with my family, mm-hmm. you know, and like my got my work-life balance right at the moment. And actually, that is good, you know, to be able to get paid decent money, do work that you enjoy, and have. Work-life balance, and be able to go for a walk, and you know, who wouldn't want those things? Surely, just that should be the goal, shouldn't? Shouldn't it? Yeah, I
0: just I wouldn't have it any other way. Now, that's fantastic. You know, it's good to hear it because I know it's a difficult few years for you, and I know in our conversations, you know, I picked up on that to the point where I didn't know really how long I should wait before annoying you to come on and uh, tell and share the story again. So, you know, it is it is really appreciated then with you and I am aware that we are on the clock a little bit today as well and I really appreciate the time you've given but what are those lessons sort of looking back from agency business one to possibly an agency business two what are you definitely doing differently this time
1: known permanent staff I mean that might change if I have to make a decision you know because profitability and freelance become expensive or I don't know but at the moment, that's my plan. No permanent staff because that was the big headache for me. Is seeing I'm not overcomplicating my delivery. I'm offering kind of no blow model. I'm being very upfront with my clients, very honest. I'm giving always or wherever possible three options, lean approach to a full fat approach based on their desire. So some things there that I think I've learned. I think I've also learned that we were very insular. I don't know why we've become so insular, but I still don't really understand that one. So one of the big learnings for me now is I'm embracing competition, I'm embracing people Mm -hmm. who do what I do. I'm networking much more. I enjoy speaking to other agencies and learning from them and going after business together and it's all that sort of stuff that we never really did before. These Um, points come
0: up before in the interviews. And you know, and I've said that, you know, I I laughed that I spent 25 years hiding behind spreadsheets from people, which is pretty much how I ran the business, which anyone who sees the amount I'm hanging around and uh, you know bugging agency owners and connecting the stuff now is, is tends to be quite surprised by. But I've spent quite a few people, and I don't know, I think from my perspective, part of it was that old school thinking of everyone's the competition, and I feel like we kept a lot of cards close to our chest. Mm. In the fear that we were giving away what we knew, and then at some point over time, yeah, I think people took a just a different, a more positive attitude to connecting with other businesses. Yeah, I
1: mean, think that abundance mindset, isn't it? That you know, there's enough business to go around for everyone. Mm. And I think maybe that is a mindset shift now that it is, and not I don't have a team to feed, I don't yeah. have to worry so much. I mean, obviously, I still have to worry about paying bills and the money coming in, but I don't need layers to be busy. And yep. so it feels a lot easier to not have the stress so much about competitors and what I'm saying. And, you know, I'm freer to say stupid shit on LinkedIn and not really suffer major consequences. That's what it's all about. Really? That's, that's why we, <laughs> that's why we really exit. <laughs> oh,
0: I feel really seen. Very final question then, uh, which I like to ask if you have a time machine and you could go back and you could look at the bumpy journey that you've been from uh, to get you where you are now, what would you change? What would you have done differently with the benefit of your
1: hindsight? Mm, That's a tough one. I think the answer is probably not wait 12 years to leave something that wasn't Mm -hmm. working for me. You know, feeling obliged and feeling guilty about thinking that. So yeah, I think making the decision sooner to move and if something's not working and probably also acknowledging the trap and the feelings that came with that sooner i think if i'd have done that and dealt with them rather than hide from them then maybe i might not have been in the kind of emotional turmoil that i ended up in
0: no i think that's a good a good lesson to end on damien i know you have to jump in the car and head off to a client meeting i really appreciate the time you've given us i think a lot of people are going to get quite a lot from listening to this i think i've certainly got a couple of clips i'm going to play back to some clients so they can enjoy that no thank you again for coming on i really appreciate it i can imagine a few people were stopping listening to that and scribbling down notes during that interview thanks again damien particularly because you were so open with us during that interview if you'd like to take damien up on that offer of a chat or indeed contact him about any ux work Links to his website and LinkedIn profile can be found in the show notes and at howtosellanagency.com. Those are also the same places to look if you'd like to find more about me and how I work with agency leaders and you'll also find links to all the past episodes of the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe so that you can join me and a new guest next time on How to Sell an Agency.